Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. No, I don't have a checkbook. I wish I did. Let me write you a check. Oh, I know. And you sign it. Yes, you rip it out of the check. Rip it out of there. Here you go. Take your check. Hello and welcome to Chickstree, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. My name is Annie and the lovely Phoebe is sitting opposite me on a screen. Hello, yes, me from cyberspace. Hello, cyberspace, mm. Phoebe. Uh, how you doing? You're good. I'm good. How you doing? Doing good. Doing good. Um, a little, just something exciting, which I didn't tell you off air because it's just come back to me. My mum rang the other day and said, oh, I've just listened to the episode on Nora Hayson. I loved it. And I was like, oh, excellent. Oh. And so for some context, mum's side of the family is her mother's side of the family is all from South Australia. And yes. she said, I'm pretty sure um, Auntie Mary had um, a few Hans Hayson paintings and I think that she oh. would have run in similar circles to Nora because they were all from the same area. I was like, oh, wow. Amazing, amazing. So I thought that was pretty cool. Look at you. Connections yeah. all over the place. So what's your fun fact for today? Well, first of all, I just wanted to say um, that I read a really great quote yesterday, which I thought would be very apt for the podcast. Lovely. Um, and certainly resonates with me, and I'm sure it will re- resonate with you and many of our Chickstorians yes. out there. So, historian Judith Bennett said, If a venture prospers, women fade from the scene. Oh. So she was, this was in regards to the wow. beer industry really from the 14th century onwards. And I yeah. thought that's really amazing. Like you look at yes. artists and makers and creators, Mary Penfold, for instance, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, she established established this winery and was yep. a winemaker and, you know, her husband got all the cred. So I thought yes. that was very, I thought that was a really great quote that I wanted to um, start with. But I'll tell very you my cool. fact. Yeah. It has yep. nothing to do with that. Um, so let's talk about pomp, ceremony, and poop. Uh, yes, I know all your favorite things. Yes. <laughs> yes, so there was an official royal title known as the Groom of the Stool. Oh, mm. so during Tudor times, think Henry the Seventh, Henry the Eighth. Yeah, uh, the groom was responsible for attending to the king's toileting needs. Mm, delightful. Mm-hmm. They would care for the toilet or stool, as it was known, that you sit on. I just yes, like not to... the yes. actual mm-hmm. stool, uh, as it was known, and be responsible for supplying water, towels, and a wash bowl for when the king was finished his biz. Mm-hmm. There is some debate as to whether the groom was actually responsible for wiping. So there are conflicting 
stories with regards to that. Uh, However, the groom of the stool was actually the highest position available in the king's privy chamber. So the groom's role expanded over time but essentially started as someone who attended the bathroom needs of the king. I guess it's the most intimate, right? Mm, That's right. So there's all these chambers and the privy chamber is the most... um, Private. Private, yes. (laughs) Uh, So during King Henry VIII's reign, he had four grooms of the stool knighted. But amazingly, this role actually carried on all the way until King Edward VII in 1901 when he decided to abolish it. Oh, my goodness. So that's, you know, that's only over 100 years ago. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, Mm. I've always, yeah, I don't know. I just, I do, I do wonder. It's funny, isn't it? Because we all do that. We all go to the toilet. We mm. all do it. Mm. And I often do think about, you know, royalty and and that situation. Like okay. not all the time, <laughs> but like I did just cross my mind when I'm like, what do they have? Do they have? Yeah, is, do you think is it the got, same? For do them? they? If they've got sorbent with like the royal yeah <laughs> decree or something imprinted on them, <laughs> I just always wondered, is it the same? <laughs> Golden turd. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Today I'm going to tell you about a woman called Amy Bock. Now, this isn't necessarily like some of the other chicks in history that we've spoken about. Mm-hmm. She was a female trickster or fraudster. Oh, so it's actually, I'm... yeah, it's something that I thought we can probably find many parallels to in you know, a lot of the podcasts that we would listen to now, so scam artists, that sort of thing, yes. influencers and possibly some of those grifters we might see on Instagram. So I yes. thought we might just get out of the um, out of the box a little bit today. Love it. Amy Maud Bock was born in Hobart, Tasmania on the 18th of May, 1859 and was the eldest of six children, only four of whom had survived infancy. Amy was the daughter of Alfred Bock and Mary Ann Parkinson, who had married the year before she was born. Both of her parents had been born in the colony, however, at least two, possibly three, of her grandparents had been convicts. Alfred Bock was a well-known artist and later a photographer, and it is believed that he was integral to introducing the carte de visite to Hobart in 1861. So a carte de visite was a format of a small photograph which was then mounted on a piece of cardboard and on the reverse was usually uh, printed the name of the photographer or the studio. So you've probably seen Mm. them, you've probably seen people post them, you might have held them, they could be in a family collection. They're very popular. Um, It would be, you know, they were an easy way in the early years of having photographs. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. Amy spent her early childhood years in Hobart before the family moved to Sale in Victoria in 1867 and then to Melbourne a few years later. During her younger years, Alfred encouraged Amy into amateur amateur dramatics in which she became quite accomplished. Mm -hmm. Through her acting, she often took on boys' roles in character plays. This seems to have been the theme for the remainder of her life. Amy was in her early teens when her mother, Marianne, was involuntarily committed to the Yarra Bend Lunatic Asylum. Mm. The Yarra Bend. I know, it's not nice. It's not fun. Marianne had spent three years in Yarra Bend before she died at only 45 years old in 1875. She'd also been sent to institutional care under a warrant, which was said that she was of very feeble bodily health, suffering from melancholia and required to be fed. 
and for the most part remained in bed until she became totally bedridden nearly two years after she'd first been admitted. There is evidence that she was delusional and thought herself to be Lady Macbeth before she was admitted. Okay. Mm. In today's medical terms, we could speculate that she was possibly manic depressive or had bipolar disorder. Mm. The official cause of death was disease of the brain. Shortly before Mary Ann died, her husband and brothers visited her. However, Amy and her siblings had not seen their mother since she had been taken away. After her mother's death, Amy was sent to boarding school in Melbourne where she stayed for almost two years. The family's financial situation was grave and after leaving school, she took up school teaching in order to contribute to the family income. However, her father had also believed that sending Amy away to teach in a rural location could fix her already questionable tendencies to lie and steal and maybe remove her from temptation. For about a decade, Amy worked as a school teacher in Gippsland, although during her tenure she was regularly absent or claiming illness and on at least two occasions was found by school inspectors to have falsified the attendance records in order to make it appear that more children were actually in attendance in her classes which thereby would inflate her salary because it would mean, oh. you know, more children, more money. Well, she's kind of clever. Well, I thought that was kind of clever too, actually. <laughs> I mean, for those days. You know. Yeah. During this time, Amy had also begun to incur in extensive debts in Melbourne where she used her status as a teacher to gain credit. Attempting to avoid payment, she wrote letters to creditors pleading with lenience or an extension on two occasions, it is purported that she wrote a letter claiming to be from her sister Ethel, which claimed Amy had died. That'll oh, get you out of the debt, wouldn't it? Mm. That'll do it. Yep. There were also a number of instances where she would go to undertakers and order coffins and then get them to get them all sent to the same families, not paying for any of the goods ordered. Now, it's unclear why she did this and I wasn't able to find any further information. But I mm, thought, That's odd. Yeah, it's but- very odd. Mm. Like, did the family, yeah, I have questions. Yeah, I have questions too. <laughs> did the family need them? Was she doing mm. it as like a threat? Did she the- know the family? Did she know them? Mm. Okay, yep. We'll In never 18- know. I will never know. In 1884, she received a summons for acquiring goods on false credit. At the time, the Age newspaper wrote an editorial which claimed Amy had a salary of £9 per month, which is about $1,500 in today's mm-hmm. uh, value which could not cover her extravagant lifestyle. The editorial also argued that she could not be held responsible for her actions because insanity exists in her family on the side of the mother who died many years ago in a Tasmanian lunatic asylum, which, you know, they didn't get their facts quite right. right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yara Band, as we know, is not mm. in Tasmania. That is correct. On the basis of her perceived ill health and lack of responsibility for her actions, Amy was discharged without conviction and pledged to be on her very best behaviour for 12 months. However, after the incident, her father, Alfred, persuaded her to move to Auckland in New Zealand, where he was now living with his new wife and their children. Oh, I was going to say, did he just go, you should move yeah. to Auckland. Yeah, just get out. Yeah, go. Just, go. But specifically Auckland. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Once she had arrived in Auckland, she moved in with her father and stepmother. However, she had left their home soon after arrival as she found the new living situation to be rather difficult. Amy then took up work as a governess for a wealthy family. Within weeks of her arriving in her new job, she had defrauded her employer and was sent before the courts. She tearfully confessed and was let off by the judge who believed she was not responsible for her actions. She was discharged into the care of a local storekeeper. These actions would set a pattern for Amy Box's subsequent career. 
Now, I'm not entirely sure why she was sent into the care of someone because at this point she was in her mid-20s. However, it could have been due to what the courts believe to be poor mental health or because she was a single wayward woman who needed supervision. They know that they need supervision. They do. They do. Naughty. Go and get herself pregnant or something. Exactly. After her time before the judge, Amy changed career paths several times and found work as a cook, housekeeper or ladies' companion and became a favourite amongst her employers when she showed outstanding diligence and charm. She began working for a family friend who had come over from Victoria where she stayed for eight months before she told her employers she had inherited a large sum of money. When they didn't believe her story, she resigned and then returned to her ways of obtaining finances where she could. As was becoming somewhat of a cycle, after a few weeks of employment, she would manage to obtain a few extra pounds here and there, sometimes due to pawning her employer's property. However, more often than not, it was due to her storytelling. So she'd weave these amazing stories. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. She would act the part of a concerned friend, dutiful sister, or distressed woman so convincingly that she was usually given cash, whereupon she would soon disappear from their lives, all the while making little attempt to conceal her tracks. By this time, the law would have caught up with her and she would be before the courts again, weeping in front of a judge and asking for God's forgiveness. <laughs> Ultimately, they would grant her a reprieve and she then would tell the story of her kleptomaniac mother and receive her sentence. Once, when spinning the story that she had inherited madness and kleptomania from her mother, the judge hearing the case commented that kleptomania was only another name for stealing. So she quite often spun this you know, my mother yes, yes. was mentally ill, etc., to try and get out of her charges. Right. So was she using kleptomania as like a big word that she thought, like, I inherited that and yeah, he's just like, I, well, that's stealing. Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't that. know if it might have been a, you know, a new word of the time. So yeah, whether this okay. had become a, yeah. She probably new, wanted to sound thing. Yeah, in, more intelligent as well. Exactly. Amy's first officially recorded court appearance in New Zealand was in April 1886 when she was before the Resident Magistrates Court in Wellington when she was charged with buying goods on credit in Christchurch and then disappearing. She was remanded in Christchurch and was sentenced to one month's hard labour at Addington Jail. Soon after her release, she became the matron of the Otaki Māori Boys College where she used some of her ill-gotten funds to purchase boots for her pupils, so turning some sort of good out of her actions. Twelve months later, she was back in court again on more fraud charges. Oh, wow. This time she was sentenced to six months in detention in an industrial school. So, again, it's unclear why she was sent to an industrial school as these institutions were for juveniles generally. Yeah. And Amy was well into her 20s by this time. Mm -hmm. Mm. So Amy made the most of her time there, however, and the superintendent who was in charge was so impressed by Amy's intelligence and ladylike deportment that he offered her employment as a teacher. Mm. The job was short-lived when it was discovered she was trying to make her getaway when she was discovered forging letters from an affectionate but fictitious aunt who needed her assistance. (laughs) Good try, though. Good try. Good try. (laughs) Amy left the industrial school in January 1888 and advertised her services as a music teacher, of which it seems that she was actually quite talented. But then three months later, she was back in jail after being charged with obtaining goods on false credit. Oh, gosh. I know. It's very up and down. It is. <laughs> Maybe she was also, I was just thinking, like if she keeps getting sort of treated like a child, like and put into schools mm. and all, you know, families. Maybe she was pretending to be 
younger than she was so that she wouldn't get penalised as hard. Yeah, that's, yeah, Maybe uh, that's possible, adult. I suppose. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but, yeah. yeah, entirely possible. After her two-month sentence, she returned to work as a governess, but that was short-lived after she received concurrent six-month sentences for larceny and false pretenses in April 1889 after the judge had pointed out her re-offending. After her release, she returned to Wellington and was again working as a housekeeper for about a year before she pawned her employer's furniture for cash. Oh, I just oh. picture it's like a couch. I don't, it's probably not, but that's just what I have in my mind. I, I'm picturing like them just coming home one day from a, you know, turn around the garden and they've just walked into an absolutely empty <laughs> living room. Uh, so after this time and she also, res- how did she get out of the Well, I want, you know, it could Facebook be. Facebook Marketplace. Then. No, I want, like it could have been linens from the house. And mm. that sort of thing. But, yes, I just picture this couch. Oh, there goes the bed. I- <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. Yeah. After this time, she received the maximum penalty of three years imprisonment with hard labour. Oh. Mm. The prosecutor described this fraud as the most cunning scheme that had ever been adopted in the colony. Amy secured an early release for good behaviour. However, mm-hmm. she was soon back to her old tricks when in October 1892 she presented herself as a wealthy tourist and obtained a loan of one pound. Once she disappeared with the money and was caught, she was again sentenced to imprisonment. The reason for the larceny this time is she had been distraught to learn about her father's death. Her father, Alfred Bock, was in fact very much alive and living back in Melbourne. Oh, my God. <laughs> mm, yes. I think she's well, got a problem the... with the truth. That's, you, uh... you, you reckon? Mm, yeah. yeah. And it's funny, like especially in those times too, because it was quite easy to become someone else and, mm. you know, not have to prove your you know, who you were, I mean, there was no identification, like all of those sorts of things. So it just, it's actually really astounding that she got caught so many times I know. As well. She must have just you been know? very well known. Or very bad at the, it. Well, very bad at it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Throughout the 1890s, she continued with her ways and was claiming to have received a substantial inheritance to purchase a house with a friend she had made at the Salvation Army home where she had lived briefly after being released from one of her stints in jail. She defrauded a number of Salvation Army members over this time before trying to make her get away and being apprehended. She was in prison for four months' hard labour. This would be her eighth prison sentence in eight years. Wow. And yeah. hard labour too. Gosh, can mm. you imagine what those imagine what those conditions were like yeah. and what Awful. she would have had to have done. But, you know, mm. naughty girl though. Naughty, naughty. Not, not condoning that behaviour but, no. you know, it's like does the – does the punishment fit the crime? Mm, yeah, that's mm. exactly right. In October 1895, after serving a three-month sentence for leaving a house owing board and lodging, Amy Bock disappears from the public record for some time. It seems that she spent a while at Magdalen Asylum for Fallen Women near Christchurch. However, we can speculate that this could have something to do with a lack of employment and housing opportunities due to her reputation. Then in 1901, Amy appears back in Christchurch. However, Amy is no longer Amy and she is now Molly Shannon. And through an elaborate description which took her to Wellington and Auckland, she was able to borrow substantial amounts of money which enabled her to buy a poultry farm. Oh, okay. Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now she's the chicken farmer. I know. I love it. So she had befriended a well-known landscape gardener and nursery man and became a guest at his home. Through him, she met and defrauded investors who put their money forth for the farm. The chicken life didn't last long. 
for Amy. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And in March 1903, she was caught and sentenced to two years imprisonment. Oh, Amy, her good, Molly. I know. Her good behaviour garnered her early release. Like, stop letting her out. <laughs> Hello. I don't think she's learning a lesson. No. You know? Clearly. I know. I know. Yeah. So upon walking out of those prison gates, Amy Bock was now, now Amy Channel. A few months later, she was charged with altering a cheque and sentenced to three years behind bars. Gosh. Oops. So by this time, she developed a reputation and was well known to the police. However, she was also known to them to be curiously moral in that she was known for giving away her ill-gotten gains, particularly to ser young servant girls and working class women. So she didn't often actually, like she didn't live a life of luxury and keep her, yeah, you know, keep what she'd keep stolen or the, the yeah. funds from what she'd stolen. Yeah. Upon her release, Amy appeared to live a quiet life in Christchurch, which, let's face it, might have been a bit boring for yeah. good old Amy. Mm -hmm. In 1908, she became Agnes Philance and oh. pawned her employer's furniture, again, again, when she had been left in charge at Christmas. She oh, created a complex yeah. scenario to try and cover her tracks by a series of letters from Miss Philance's concerned friend, Charlotte Skevington. A warrant for arrest was issued in January 1909. However, by this time, she had disappeared. It was here that she found her perfect disguise. She posed as a wealthy sheep farmer, Percival Leonard Carroll Redwood, also known as Percy. A man? A man. Mm. Love it. So Percy had an extravagant lifestyle, holidaying on the coast, oh. and during one of his stays at the Albion boarding house, he met and began courting the landlady's daughter, Agnes Ottaway, also known as Nessie. Oh. Within a few weeks, the couple were engaged. During this time, Amy, or Percy, was able to convey and maintain an appearance of wealth by a succession of deceptions involving letters to lawyers, postal orders, and small personal loans. Gosh. I know. Only a few remarks were made about Percy's appearance, which revolved around his height. When people remarked about how short he was, he would say that he had once been a jockey. <laughs> Naturally. Exactly. Um, and I'll put photos on Instagram. And you can't yeah. like it. You you could be fooled, yeah, honestly. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. But and but obviously they hadn't been intimate. Well, no, they weren't married. Of course. Oh, excuse me. On the twenty first of April, nineteen oh nine, Percy and Nessie married in an elaborate ceremony at Albion House in oh front of two hundred guests oh and gosh. even a local member of parliament. Oh my gosh! Oh, I know. She's kind of brilliant, isn't she? But I know. <laughs> She really is. Yeah. So throughout their short courtship, Percy had been at pains to let people know that his family would be in attendance and would settle any monetary debts that he had. But then at the last moment, Percy's family had written to say that they would not be able to attend the wedding. As silly them, they'd forgotten they had another family wedding on the very same day. Brilliant excuse. Oh, I know. So the morning after the <laughs> wedding, the bride's parents and a number of close friends confronted Percy about his finances and gave him a week's grace to settle his debts. Subsequently, oh, yeah. two friends made further inquiries and found they were not able to trace Percy's mother. They took their concerns to the local police who recognised the telltale signs of Amy Bock's fraudulent activity and recognised oh. her immediately. Oh, God. I know. The ruse is up. <laughs> Only days after the wedding, Amy was arrested at the Ottaway's boarding house and convicted in the courts on two counts of false pretenses and one of forgery. The marriage was annulled two months later. Oh, poor Nessie. I know. You feel really sorry for her. And there's also been speculation that she was 
uh, 32 when they right. married. So mm-hmm. she was an old spinster. It's quite old, yes. So it was day. like a court, mm. a short courtship wouldn't have been an issue, would have yes. just been, oh, great, someone's interested in Nessie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Get her off her hands, oh. which is an awful thing to think, but it's yeah. Yeah. entirely, entirely possible. Oh. So at this conviction, Amy was declared an habitual criminal, which meant that she could be detained in prison until such time as the governor was convinced that she can be granted her liberty with perfect safety to the public. Finally. I know. So she was only the second woman in New Zealand to be declared as such. Right. During this time, to help fund her legal bills, Amy produced postcards, which she sold for a profit. There were two, one of Amy dressed as Percy smoking a pipe and another of a photo of Amy where she's posing as Percy and reads Amy Bock, alias, Channel, Shannon, Valance, Skevington, alias, Percy Carol Redwood, the female bridegroom. Wow. So Amy was released two years after the wedding fiasco and mm. released on probation when she began working at an aged care home and became quite popular amongst the community. Pretty low-key mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. In 1914, she married Charles Edward Christofferson, a farmer from Sweden, and was subsequently granted an unconditional unconditional discharge from her probation in 1915, presumably because a man could keep his wife in check. That's why she would have been released. A hundred percent. So, however, the couple parted but did not divorce within the year due to Amy's debts. She faced court a number of times over the next 15 or so years, usually charged for larceny and fraud. Oh, my goodness. Same old, same old. In October 1931, she made her final court appearance in Auckland where she was sentenced to two years probation on the condition that she lived in the Salvation Army home. A court reporter described her as a faded old lady in a dove grey alpaca cloth costume with a drooping hat of lace straw, grey gloves and supporting herself on a walking stick. Oh, I know. That's not a good image. No. So Amy wasn't an especially successful fraudster or trickster. In fact, she usually only stole very small amounts of money, but it was her inventiveness that uh, to get what she wanted that made her well known. Usually mm. once she had absconded from the crime and been caught, she would generally admit to her to the fraud that she'd committed. It was her use of emotional claims to her employers or other acquaintances in order to obtain money or property that made her a female confidence trickster. She would also do things such as what, uh, take a watch for repair and then claim to have lost it but actually pawned it, okay. mm. Uh, mm, making purchases under employers or other acquaintances' names without their permission or claiming to sell tickets to concerts and events and keep the money. <laughs> and they are like either the event wasn't happening or she just said she was selling the tickets. She's like via go-go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Uh, Jenny Coleman wrote in her book Mad or Bad, The Life and Exploits of Amy Bock that Amy's crimes did often not benefit her. She would go to great lengths to scam people, then use the money to buy things which she gave away for free. Her scams were like a pyramid scheme but with nobody at the top. Yeah. Yeah. So during, mm. yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it, to think of it that way. Mm. So during her career, she became somewhat of a criminal celebrity. The newspapers relished in telling her stories of her yeah. exploits and court appearances and, you know, they were all very dramatic and but they quite favoured her. Yeah, oh, a perfect was, story. Can you imagine? Very yeah. entertaining. Yes. Mm-hmm. So in 1943, at the age of 84 years old, Amy Bock died in Auckland, New Zealand. Overall, she had 13 periods of imprisonment, totalling 16 years and two months. God. I know. So that's a story of Amy Bock. Oh, my goodness. Mm. That's 
Yeah, we love a we love a um a scammer, you mm. and I. And um, I've listened to that podcast, Scamander. Oh, which is huh. if you haven't listened, go and listen to it immediately. And that is just you just wonder like what drives these people to lie and just and then you just sort of like you end up. Being, being so far in that you just don't know when to stop. Mm. And, you know? and you've got to keep up with all the lies you're telling. That's the yes. other thing. Yeah. It, yeah. It, Scamander, absolute 10 out of 10 recommend. Yes. Um, yeah. A lot of us are fascinated mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that part of the human psyche, I think. Yeah. And it also makes you go, oh, God, my life's so normal. But also... <laughs> You do think, how can these people be so stupid? But at the same time, they're quite often just run-of-the-mill people that, you know, ingratiate themselves to you and work their way Mm -hmm. into your lives that it's, you know, you can sort of understand how people get scammed in that respect too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other one that, you know, um, we were talking about was the Finding Samantha. Mm, Yep. Um, you know, and that was just uh, like the psychology behind, and because she wasn't really getting anything out of mm. her scams, really. Like, if you sort of compare it, it wasn't like she was, you know, trying to make money or um, advance herself in kind of any way. She was just sort of lying for the sake of lying, mm. and it's a pathological, path- thing. yeah, and just the the thrill and joy of kind of getting away with it, and then going, oh, okay, you got me again. Mm. Like, it's just this be this constant sort of game that they mm. that, that you would play. So um, that was great. That was good. I like that we sort of ventured out a little bit from there. Yeah. You know, it's not some, it's just, look, it's not all about women doing amazing things in history. Mm. It's just about women in history who may have been forgotten or we don't know about. So mm. women we can learn from. What women we do? can learn from. Yes. Mm. Don't fake checks. Don't lie. Do you have a checkbook? I don't. <laughs> there should be pieces of um, advice today. Don't fake checks and don't lie. And don't That's lie. It. They're just the two rules for life. There's the two rules for life. And <laughs> I remember um, my mum paying for groceries with a check. Yeah, I remember my mum having a checkbook and mm. just being fascinated. And then I think when I, because I was banking with like Commonwealth since I was at school, mm. um, and I remember Dolomites that they had, yeah, represent. They had the they had those transaction booklets that were mm. like checks, and it was like, yeah. oh, this is so good. This is like I can play offices with these. This yes, you have to fill it out. Oh yes. yeah, I yeah. love a carbon copy. I love oh, a, a carbon pet. copy. <laughs> Now you're talking. Yeah, what were we saying about our lives not being uh, interesting? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. Another great story. Another episode done and dusted. Done and dusted in the can. In the can. We'll see you next week. Uh, thanks for listening. And don't write bad checks and don't lie. <laughs>